Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 8th, 2022. I wish I could tell you it was a day for good news, but it isn't. Unfortunately, the news continues to get worse. Maybe that's why we have the news to make us miserable. Omicron is back, apparently, in the United States. Never really went away. COVID then is about to uh, reappear, uh, make us even more miserable. Uh, But it's made us really miserable over the last couple of years. Um, the pandemic has pushed, particularly in the, in, in, the, in the poor countries, whatever poor countries, I use that term carefully, uh, COVID, the COVID pandemic, according to one headline, has pushed poor countries to record debts. Um, according to the UN, uh, in West Africa, extreme poverty has risen more than 3% over the last couple of years. Uh, all sorts of really scary, miserable, depressing news. 70% of Kyrgyzstanis are going into poverty because of various crises. Uh, the World Bank has determined a new global poverty line. I assume it's lower than before, maybe to make us a bit more cheerful. Fewer people are in poverty if that line's lower. Um, but generally, the pandemic is bad news, particularly bad news for the South, uh, Another headline that the global pandemic has increased poverty in Africa. Uh, just for a definition, uh, I'm, I'm quoting something I found. Uh, most people in the world live in poverty. 85% of the people live on. Uh, 85% of the people live on less than $30 a day. That's U.S. dollars. Two thirds live on less than $10 a day, and every tenth person lives on less than $1.90 per day. That's going to get us all crying into our six dollar lattes so what are we going to do about it how are we going to fix this how are we going to address the crisis of poverty um particularly in africa a new book out interesting new book with my guest today the time traveling economist why education electricity and fertility are key to escaping poverty it's written by my guest charlie robertson who is talking to me from london charlie Is the news really bad? Has COVID made the problem of poverty around the world, particularly in the in the global south? Has it made it significantly worse? No, you're right. It hasn't helped. Um, But but what I'm getting at in the book is that there's quite a lot that was underlying uh, the reasons why countries have built up so much debt over the last 10 years was was happening anyway. And was because of well, actually, because of high fertility uh, is the interesting um, chapter in the book on, on that subject. Now, I, I think COVID in itself wasn't a wasn't as bad. Uh, countries like Nigeria, zero uh, percent of the population are eighty or over, um, and when the average age of those dying in the UK was eighty of COVID, um, it shows you that, that a lot of the the lower income countries were very young and therefore less likely to be hit. At least directly in terms well, that's, of that's that's people dying, but the impact on the economy. I mean, the, the other piece of news today, which we didn't include, is one of the consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is um, is a, a global food crisis, a grain crisis. So, whether or not you die, you're still going to be hungry. Even there, it's uh, 
there is still a lot of supply of global wheat. Global wheat stocks are about the highest they've been in 60 years. It's a question of getting those stocks out of Russia and Ukraine. That's fair. Um, but I, I won't be surprised if in six months' time some of this food price pressure is gone. What's intriguing, uh, Charlie, about your work and you is you're not just another nonprofit do-gooder. Your day job is at um, Renaissance Capital. I'm not sure I understand what you do. You have a Moldovan capital markets there. I'm not sure if that's comic or serious. You also do uh, Nigerian tech and fintech, which I always thought is what the internet's about. Um, so, so you're coming to this as a financial guy. You live in London. You work in the city. So this is not some bleeding heart book, right? No, it was. It was. It came about from going to about ten years worth of conferences across Africa, uh, sometimes South Asia, and getting the same question at every conference, uh, which is, you know, where are the jobs going to come from? Uh, why are we so poor? Um, and, and and a lot of reasons being thrown at me as to as to where he was coming from. And I I like numbers, um, and I delved into a lot of the numbers. And I reckon there's three reasons why there's still poverty in the world today, uh, and they've been true for 200, 300 years. Um, so this is about trying to identify for investors uh, where's the big growth story next. We've had China for 30 years. It's now India. When are the next countries coming? Um, when are they going to start booming? When do you put your money in? But it's also to, to talk to people in these countries and say, you need to talk to your politicians about addressing these three key issues. There's an awful lot of, lot of so many challenges if you live in a low-income country. Everything needs money. But, but what I'm trying to argue in this book is that try and focus on three. And over 10 years, you can make a huge difference. Um, those three are education, electricity, and fertility. Yeah. We'll come to those. But you mentioned earlier, Charlie, that you like numbers. You certainly do. Your day job is as a numbers guy. And your 2012 book was The Fastest Billion, the story behind Africa's economic revolution. That book's been out 10 years. Has there been an economic revolution in Charlie uh, in Africa, Charlie, over the last 10 years? Well, you are seeing this shift in tech. You're seeing people are able to do this in pesa, moving money. Don't sound I'm very convinced, though. It's not transformational. That that's not enough to get people out of poverty. So, what were you arguing in the fastest billion that hasn't happened? Because you were predicting an economic revolution in Africa. It hasn't happened. Why? Because. For a few countries, it's because they're still not well educated enough. Enough. You need 70, 80% adult literacy. So for the Sahel region, countries like Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, Somalia, uh, quite a few of the countries that have had coups in the last 18 months, you've got less than 40% of the population can read or write in any language. And when you've got a figure that low, you cannot grow sustainably. Um, this was pointed out by a woman back in the 1960s. So that's one problem. Second problem is there's not enough electricity to power factories or even offices so that people can go in and do work that would actually raise money for themselves. Um, and why the question I've been trying to get at in this book is to answer those questions. Why isn't there enough money around? Um, and, it, and it comes down to the fertility issue. People with big families don't have any cash left on Friday night to put into a bank account, to save. Banks don't have any cash to lend. 
the cost of money is extremely high, unlike in the West, where we have, what, on average, two kids and plenty of savings, um, and, and interest rates tend to be just a few percent, not 10 or 20 percent. It's so, interesting that you make this argument, because we had a, a Norwegian economist, Vigard Skurbeck, on the show a couple of weeks ago, who talked about bringing down global birth rates. I'm not sure if he made the same argument about you, but his goal is the same, have fewer kids. His was He was making an argument from an environmental point of view. You're suggesting that having fewer kids creates essentially more capital for investment. Is that fair? That's exactly right. So they did a study on uh, Chinese savings in the late 20th century, and they found that over half of the increase in household savings, which are massive in China, were because of the one-child policy. Now, I think the one-child policy has gone too far. When you, when you, when you make that mistake of, of bringing down the fertility rate that much, you actually end up growing old potentially before you get, before you get wealthy. Uh, and that, that's going to be a risk for China. Uh, what's interesting about your book is what's missing um, in terms of the subtitle. Why Education, Electricity and Fertility are Key to Escaping Poverty. The two things that really stick out, which are intriguing, which I assume are polemical, is firstly, you're not mentioning democracy. And secondly, you don't talk about the Internet. So what about democracy? Because you bring up China. And of course, China offers the alternative non-democratic model for much of the, the global South for development. And yet, on the other hand, the Chinese model um, in a political sense is, at least from the point of view of democracy advocates, is very troubling. Where are you on China? And, and why isn't democracy in that subtitle? Because for the first $10,000, $20,000 of per capita GDP, to get to that level, it, it doesn't matter. Um, in fact, I'm arguing in the book that communism and no democracy at all is is pretty effective very effective because what do communists do they demand that everyone can read and write their propaganda and secondly they they push electricity uh lenin was making that you know key policy back in the early yeah, what's his famous quote what what, what what was his famous quote on electricity on it's it i think it's like, nep something like uh, uh freedom plus electricity equals communism so communism equals electricity and yeah exactly so you've got to have electricity he recognized that you've got to have power stalin did an incredible job um, at huge cost um incredible job at getting electricity charlie we hear much especially in silicon valley where i live about mobile technology everyone in africa having mobile phones there's been an argument there have even been books about africa leaping the the plug-in stage if they have mobile technology, do they still need electricity? They might need a bit less. It's possible that people might be able to jump into doing some service type uh, exports where you can build an app in Kenya, send it, sell it in America, and you don't actually have to have as much electricity to do that. So that, that could be a helpful thing, and that would be quite a helpful thing, given how expensive it is to to make i've looked still is you need to be able to read and write to do anything on a mobile phone or to do very much on a mobile phone um, and as a consequence the there is still an issue when when 60 percent of nigerians can read and write but 40 percent can't that's still an issue in terms of just how is that country going to get out of subsistence agriculture 
We've done a lot of shows on Africa. Um, much of it is very depressing. One with the Irish journalist Sally Hayden, who exposed the 21st century slave trade involved in the migration crisis, My Fourth Time We Drowned. It's a very important book uh, for people who haven't read it. Also, some slightly more positive books about um, immigrants, African immigrants in particular, being entrepreneurial, one with the American uh, entrepreneur Andrew Leon Hanna, and another with uh, Usman Umar, Barcelona-based uh, African uh, refugee who survived um, walking across the Sahara north to paradise. He wrote a memoir. It's an, another important book. I was very impressed and struck with my conversation with him. He argues, uh, Umar argues, that we've got to stop treating Africa as a basket case and start investing in it, in, in innovation. I assume you, you share his argument. Yes, but what I'm trying to argue is that there's almost, uh, it's not enough potential foreign investment to, to fill the investment gap. It has to come from the country itself. Um, and that's what we've seen in Asia. As you get your family size down, the savings locally become big enough to start to make the difference. Foreign savings don't do it. Uh, and, and if you're borrowing the money, you end up in a debt crisis, which is what we're having in a few countries right now. So this, the, the difficulty here is, is that countries need, want to be able to stand on their own two feet. They don't want to be taking aid. We've seen countries like Ghana, the president there is pushing the argument, no more, we're, we're beyond aid. People want to be able to stand on their own two feet. And that comes about from, from getting that fertility rate down. But doesn't ultimately, Charlie, all this come down to politics? The, the Singapore model, for example, you know, 100 years ago, Singapore was one of the poorest countries in the world. Today, it's, I think, the richest country in the world. And that's a consequence of the technocratic authoritarianism that was pioneered, really, in, in Singapore. Isn't the problem, in part, at least in the global south, particularly in Africa, the corrupt political elites? It's not that there isn't enough money or capital. It's simply that that capital is flowing into their private bank accounts in Switzerland rather than into the country itself. That's there's no uh, you can see in the data, though, and I, I do mention this in the book, that per capita GDP is extremely well correlated with corruption and, and countries only get good corruption scores, good transparency, international scores when they get wealthy. So all countries start corrupt. Um, there, was a, there was a great book um, on the States by I think Gordon Steele. He's talking about the cesspit of corruption in New York in the 1870s or got the UK Marconi scandal. Corruption is very normal, and it's only when you get a wealthy middle class saying, I don't want my taxes stolen. But isn't that chicken, uh, sorry to interrupt, Charlie, that's chicken and egg. I mean, the whole premise of the Singaporean revolution was built on anti-corruption. Singapore, city-state, is quite a special story. A career, we've got, what, four presidents in jail right now? Korea has been one of the most successful, uh, South Korea, and one of the most successful economic development stories of the last 50 years. Only now are they addressing the corruption issue, as they should at about $25,000, $30,000. That's when countries do that. We, and you know this better than I do, we talk about Africa monolithically, which of course is absurd. Are there countries, communities, states in Africa which offer some sort of model for getting out of poverty that do it better, that might be the Singapore's of the future? Mauritius has already done it. 
Um, back in the 60s, it had high fertility, didn't have enough education, not enough literate people. It was seen as an IMF colony. And uh, by the 1980s, it was doing textiles. It's moved up into now financial services. And it's one of the second richest country in, uh, in, in Africa. And, and so, yes, it's happened. Morocco is now following. It's, uh, the fertility rate came down in the 90s. Um, and Peugeot, Renault cars started rolling off the production lines in the late 2000s. Um, it is leading Africa's second industrialization wave. So it's happened. And interest rates in those countries with low fertility rates is 2%. Same as Vietnam or China. They can Rich on China, uh, of course, the, uh, the Chinese overseas policy, particularly in terms of Africa, is massive investment and which requires a degree of, I don't know whether it's a new kind of colonialism or an old kind of colonialism, but it certainly resulted in very significant Chinese power in Africa. What's your take on that? Were the, the Chinese, are the Chinese involved in Morocco? Were they involved in Mauritius? Uh, neither, uh, in a big way. Um, what they have done is, is been lending hundreds of billions, as you know, to to a whole load of Belt and Road projects, um, including South Asia and, and Sub-Saharan Africa. And I feel they've made a mistake. That what they've done is not time traveled back 30 years and said what made China successful in the 1980s and the early 90s, which was coastal factories near ports ready to export to rich countries in the West. What, what they've done is said, what is China doing today? We're building railways. And so let's let's lend money to build railways so that they can use Chinese railway companies to, to build tracks and use the ends and use the trucks. Even Chinese drivers driving trains for 10 years in Kenya. Uh, and Chinese banks have, have supported their own companies that are doing this in China and now Africa. That probably was not the right lending policy stance. What about, come back to this issue of China, I've done lots of shows, did one with Amelia Pang on Chinese slave labor camps, another with Joanna Chu on the human cost of, Chinese, of China's growth. How many policymakers, business people, politicians in Africa have you talked to about the compromises involved in the China model, even if they, like you, time travel back to the 90s and try to emulate what the Chinese have done? What I'm arguing in the book is you don't need to, you certainly don't need to go down their, their one-child policy. That was, as I, as I said, a, a, probably a mistake. Um, however, pushing You need that one party, though. I mean, the last thing you want is, is, is a Lebanese scenario of continual political chaos, or even an American scenario. India's got there, though, 25 years later on education than China. Um, but in the 2010s, they got adult literacy above the 70% mark you need to industrialize. And that's mm -hmm. why India's doing so well today. And they have enough electricity. And the fertility rate's down at two kids per woman. So they've got local savings. And they're now booming. And they're going to continue to boom for the next 20, 30 years. So, so India might offer the alternative model to China. India's already there. Vietnam's already there. Philippines is already there. They're already taking over that mantle now. What, and Bangladesh, uh, a bit more overlooked. What I'm getting at in this book is that because we can we can see from UN forecasts when the fertility rates are going to fall below three kids in Pakistan, Egypt, Kenya, Ghana, we can then say we know that local savings should increase 
substantially. And when they do, interest rates come down. Then you can build infrastructure. Then you've got electricity. Then you can industrialize. Then you provide jobs for your people. Until then, you're exporting people. That migrant issue you raised earlier, that's exactly what happens when you haven't got enough savings because your fertility rate is too high. That was the Philippines in the late 20th century. That's Bangladesh 10 years ago, or Pakistan. Um, and in the next 10, 15 years, it's going to be Ghana. It's going to be Kenya exporting labor because they haven't yet got enough savings to support an industrial base locally. Is um, what's driving this immigration crisis in Africa the same as the one driving the immigration crisis in Central America? There are two sort of parallel refugee crises going on in the world, or three if you include the Ukraine um, and the Middle East, but obviously the African attempt to come to Europe and the Central American attempt to come to the United States. Are they driven by the same crises of poverty? The numbers actually for, for refugees trying to cross, economic migrants or refugees trying to cross the Mediterranean are quite interesting because they're not Africans. They're Bangladeshis who are coming via Tunisia to cross the sea to Italy in the main. Uh, because to, to be a successful migrant, you need literacy and you need money. I had an Afghan taxi driver who told me his, his family had got together $10,000, $15,000 to fund the 18-month trip through Russia illegally to get to the UK to start being a taxi driver. People without literacy, without education, don't leave the village, let alone the country. So the migrant wave that we're going to see, or we're seeing, is, is at the moment limited in Africa. It's going to be much, much bigger in about 10 to 20 years. There's a, a really good work by Michael Clemens at the Centre for Global Development on this, um, which, I, which I cite in the book. We did a show, actually, about... The refugee crisis in Central America. We talked about Guatemala. Levi Vonk, another on-the-spot journalist, who talked about the the crime and the, the the gang warfare that's driving much of the refugee crisis in Central America. I, I assume that that's relatively unique to that part of the world, to El Salvador and Guatemala. I am not an expert on Latin America. Um, but it is fascinating that when the South Africans talk to me about crime in their country um, and four South African cities rank in the 50 most murderous cities in the world, all the other 46 are in the Americas. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not the right person to speak to about why that is, but um, there is a difference between what's happening, it would appear, from that data. And there's um, new poverty also in Latin America, in countries, well, in countries like Venezuela. There is no other country like Venezuela. But Venezuela as a model for essentially the, uh, I don't know what, the the, 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 the the complete failure, the collapse of the state. Uh, so there is sort of post-industrial post poverty as well, isn't there? Yeah, no, that's been, but it is, I mean, there's another book to write about that degree of failure. It's very hard to, to do it. Um, Africa has managed in one case to have that, which is Zimbabwe. This was a country which did right. manage to industrialize, did have an industrial base with good enough education, um, and actually still did pretty well for the first 10, 15 years of Mugabe's rule, but then just degenerated. It's one of the few countries where you've actually seen income drop 30% over 40 years. That just doesn't happen very often. So that reminds us again of the importance of politics. Yeah, but it does. But equally, the problems of one party rule. 
Um, and so the, the China model happens to work. The Eritrean model doesn't work so well. What about the Cuba Isn't... model? We did a, a wonderful show on Cuba a couple of weeks ago with Ada Farah. She has a book out called Cuba and American History. It won the Pulitzer Prize this year. She's ambivalent about the failure or success of, of Cuba, but it, it's certainly more of a success than Zimbabwe or, or Venezuela, isn't it? It started off um, with much, much higher literacy rates. One of the highest literacy rates in Latin America was in Cuba. So it should have been one of the big success stories. Um, it's the highest income country to have had a communist revolution, I show in the book as well, uh, which is a surprise. Um, the difficulty with communism, although I do suggest you can sort out the education and the electricity problem, it doesn't get you much further than that. Um, you have to move towards the capitalist model if you want to if you want to do very well over the long run. Um, Let's talk a little China. bit about education. We've talked about electricity and fertility. A um, couple of questions on education. Firstly, we've done lots of shows about the crisis of education in the United States, the legacy of Jim Crow, for example, the way in which capitalism is uh, sort of looting the American university. Um, when it comes to education, what can the developing world learn from the mistakes of countries like United States where education seems to be in crisis? I think that crisis is still some decades away. I do think there's a learning to be had, which is if you look at the Korean model, they had barely got out of agricultural subsistence farming in the early 60s, were just getting into textiles in the late 60s, early 70s, when the government said, we need proper engineers who can do heavy industry. There was no heavy industry in Korea at the time, but they knew that universities needed to start churning out those people in the 70s, the 1970s and early 1980s, so that by the time the late 1980s came and Korea had reached the heavy industrial model, Daewoo cars, steel, shipbuilding, that there would be graduates available to do it. So what's, what's I find fascinating about that is for Kenya, which has got tiny uh, manufacturing base uh, relative to many countries in the world, that they need to be looking ahead beyond the textiles boost that I expect them to get in 10 years and start thinking about the graduates they're going to need in 20, 25 years when our electric cars are all being built in Nairobi. And what about digital when it comes to, I'm ambivalent about the benefits of digital. I've written a lot of books about them, but when it comes to education, if everyone in Africa, or if most people in Africa have a mobile phone, can't we have online education? Isn't that one way out of it? Or do we still need physical schools? One of the things that was really interesting and in some ways heartbreaking in my conversation with Usman Umar was his experience in schools in Africa where he would walk several miles every day to school, which was outside under a tree. And when it rained, he'd have to walk home again because the school got canceled. Can digital fix or help fix the education crisis? Which country was he from, out of curiosity? Um, I think he was from Uganda. Interesting. Um, you should look at the book, though. It's really good. No, no, no. It looks, it looks really cool. North and just, to, uh, it's called North to uh, Paradise. I find it fascinating to just keep on hearing stories like that about how important education is seen and is recognized. As and such. he and makes education effort. central in everything in his whole argument. And he's yeah, living no. in Barcelona right now. It's that, That's the time-traveling aspect I'm getting at in this book. You can jump 100 years of development if you can 
get to the West and get a job there. You, you, there's a hundred years of struggle um, that, that you can bequeath to your kids, which, which makes it so attractive to make that move. Um, sorry, so to, to come back to your, your question, the, the, was it the digital bit and whether or not people could go out and... I, I don't know. I mean, the, phone, I, I, I the mobile phone essentially be a replacement for the school? I, I hear evangelists, um, and there's quite a lot of companies trying to push this. Um, I'm quoting some research saying that when you rolled out laptops, iPads to, to schools in Brazil, most teachers didn't even uh, use them with their kids. Um, I, the, the difficulty is relying on traditional schooling is, is a problem when governments sometimes want to just meet a goal that they've been, you know, the United Nations says, do this. So Malawi fills its classrooms with 80 kids and says, we've got all our kids at school. But 80 kids in a class, you know, what are they really learning? And some of the educational outcomes, even from traditional teaching methods then, are not, uh, they're not great. Uh, there's a number of kids still coming out illiterate after a few years of primary schooling. Um, so it just needs, I argue, un unlike those who, who think aid is, is a waste of time, I. I would argue that in this area, any aid is helpful. Well, uh, I think you've, you've, you've done a lot of thinking about this. The Time-Traveling Economist, Why Education, Electricity and Fertility, A Key to Escaping Poverty. It's a book that's just out. It's a good book, even if it's written by an Arsenal fan. Uh, Charlie, um, most of the people or the, the vast majority of people listening and watching this are not in significant poverty. They're not from the global south. What can individuals do? who care about this stuff, what would you advise rather than just giving to a charity? What, what, what's the best strategy if you care about this stuff? Obviously they um, need to read your book. Well, I, I mean, I still think there's a value in just recognizing that your family has been through this and it may be a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, but there was a time when your grandparents or great, great grandparents had six, seven, eight kids and, and they also lived in poverty. So you're not different. You, your family history is not different. Um, what else can you do? You can buy products. You can go, you can do the tourist route if you can uh, pay the carbon kind of offset for the flight. Fair trade goods. Um, you can be encouraging your government to, to make trade as simple and easy um, for, for countries in Africa as the Goa Act in the US does. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot just to, to do about understanding. But for me, I big chunk of the audience that I want for this is, is going to be in India. It's going to be in Pakistan, Bangladesh. It's going to be in Kenya. I want, I want people to be pressuring their politicians to be, to be doing the right thing, not trying to do everything and achieving relatively little. Well, that's a very compelling argument. Why education, electricity and fertility are key to escaping poverty, the time-traveling economist. Congratulations, Charlie, on the new book. What else mm -hmm. should people be reading? What are you reading these days in addition to your financial... Uh, term sheets and uh, and your new book what's what's a compelling read i've i just read a book by a um a guy at a who was talking about his schooling in nigeria actually in the 1980s and it was a, a, a guy i saw at a conference he said i'm also an author um and i wrote this down so i would get it right but it's um but you'll have to give me a a few seconds but i just found a fascinating insight into education and what it's like uh, in in you know, 1980s Nigeria. I also really enjoyed Lords of the Desert, which was just looking at the Middle East to how the US and UK competed um, over that one. But I'm trying to find the uh, Sagakawa or something book. Oh dear, I'm sorry about this. 
I'm, uh, I'm, I'm being uh, annoying now. So I did have it. Surviving Sajumako, which is uh, the school, um, S-A-J-O-M-A-C-O. And uh, it was just, it was one of those books I had no reason to particularly read or, or, or to equate to. I hadn't been to a boarding school. I didn't know what Nigerian schools were, were like. And there's just something about the way it's written is uh, fascinating. 